The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Well, hello, Dror. How are you doing at this late hour? I'm doing hour? great, Mark. Yeah, this late hour here and early hour there. But uh, any time is a good time to talk about uh, video technology, right? It is. It is. On the video insiders, for sure. Yeah, so this is sort of like a, a little bit of a special episode. Um, we are talking about Game of Thrones. I have to say, I'm, I'm not a very big fan of Game of Thrones. I might be the one of the only people on the planet Earth who hasn't uh, seen it, but uh, my daughter is a huge fan. I mean, um, they uh, aired the episodes um, here in Israel uh, simulcast when in, in the same time that they first air uh, in the U.S. So this means oh, 4 wow. a.m. So wow. she sets the alarm clock, imagine this, and she gets up at 4 a.m., to watch the newest episode of uh, Game of Thrones. So uh, she did this, of course, for episode three, where everybody waited for this, you know, immense uh, uh, <laughs> battle that, that was going to happen. And uh, and the next day, you know, I started reading all this stuff in Twitter about the quality and the darkness and the compression artifacts and all of that. And I said, uh, did you notice anything? And she said, yeah, you know, now that you mention it, I saw something, you know, in, in the fog, in the sky, it was white and it was kind of completely out of context, but I thought it was kind of a bug or an error. But I said, you know, yeah. it wasn't streaming. You were watching this on cable. And she said, yeah, you know, now that you mention it, it <laughs> shouldn't have happened. And then she goes back and, and, and rewinds the episode on, on VOD and shows me. And, and I was just, you know, amazed by, by, by the amount of artifacts and the banding and everything. And she it's, said, yeah, it's amazing. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. I mean, it, you know, of course, a lot's been written on this, but The Verge uh, wrote, wrote an entire piece that was called something like how to set up your TV for a rewatch of the longest night. <laughs> <laughs> and the implication was, you know, was that I couldn't really see what was happening the first time. So I have to rewatch it, not because the story was so complex or, you know, even though the story is quite, quite complex, but I just, I literally couldn't see. And I thought, wow, that is a bizarre scenario. What really teed up this particular episode of the Video Insiders is a blog post that we published on May 3rd. And so for those listening, if you've not had a chance to read that, um, that might be a, a good follow-up. We'll put that in the show notes. But, um, you know, you, you know that fans are upset um, when we went through and we uh, screenshot shotted, you know, some of the, the, the Twitter uh, comments. And we, first of all, there were some we just couldn't use because, you know, this is a G-rated family show. <laughs> and, and, the, and, yeah. and, and the words that some people wrote were, um, shall we say, nicely inappropriate <laughs> for such a forum. Uh, and then the ones that we did pull out, um, there is uh, definitely some use we of still had, have, had to cross <laughs> out some of the words, right? <laughs> we, had to, we had to blur. Uh, so, uh, yeah, let's just say that fans were not happy. And so, yeah, the setup is this. On uh, April 28th, um, the third episode of season eight 
called The Longest Night was aired. And uh, I I think The Longest Night was kind of an appropriate title because it it also was the darkest show. Um, (laughs) TechCrunch TechCrunch wrote an article uh, titled, Why Did Last Night's Game of Thrones Look So Bad? So we're here to talk about what happened from an encoding perspective. And, and, and let's start there because, um, you know, really there's different theories circulating around and, uh, you know, some of them, uh, are correct. Some of them are partially correct and some of them are, are not. So we're going to focus on the encoding perspective. What happened, Dror? How, how in the world, I mean, HBO, you know, these are serious content producers. These are networks. I mean, everybody from, you know, I think Comcast to Sky got shots taken at them over video quality. And no one's going to say that Comcast doesn't know how to deliver good quality video or Sky or how could this happen? Yeah, that's a, that, that's a good question. And, and we need to, first of all, say that there were Two issues here. One is that there was an artistic uh, decision to shoot everything in the dark. So um, everything looked uh, very dark and uh, it was hard to see, as we said, who died and what happened. But the other issue was that in those dark scenes, uh, which were also uh, covered with a lot of uh, fog and uh, smoke and uh, um, and there was, uh, you know, pieces of, of land and sky, um, in those dark scenes, there were many video compression artifacts uh, visible, uh, much more than you would see in your usual, you know, watching of, of streaming, especially on, uh, you know, high quality networks. And here, these artifacts were visible even when you were using, uh, you know, broadcast providers like your cable or satellite, where you expect that everything uh, would look uh, great because they have, uh, you know, the cable connection to your house or a high-speed uh, satellite dish. Uh, but still, there were a lot of artifacts. So before we, we you know, kind of dive in and, and see where the artifacts uh, came from, specifically in this uh, dark scene, we need to understand in general how do you, um, how are artifacts created uh, in video compression? And for this, you need to understand how the video compression process works. And in general, you know, we're not going to do like a full one-on-one course on on video compression, but when you uh, compress a frame of video that has, uh, let's say in full HD, it has about uh, 2 million pixels, and in uh, 4K, it has 8 million pixels each, you can't uh, handle all of those millions of pixels together, so you divide the frame into blocks. That's typical in many many, uh, compression uh, schemes. Most of the video codecs that we know today use the same uh, compression scheme, which is called the block-based uh, coding. You divide, first of all, the image into blocks. Each block goes through a transformation to the frequency domain where it's easier to handle uh, the data and remove data that is uh, unnecessary. And another usage of blocks, and these can be varying uh, sizes of blocks, is actually to uh, describe one image in terms of another image. So if you have... Uh, two frames that are similar to each other, instead of describing separately what happens in each frame, uh, you just take a certain block in one frame and say, this block moved to this location in the next frame. So all you have to do is define uh, the location of the block and what's called the motion vector, how that block moved to um, another location in the next frame. 
And then you don't need to send all of those pixels again in the next frame. You just say, use the same pixels as the previous frame. They just moved over here. But the issue is that uh, when an object moves, uh, when a block is uh, translated to another position, uh, it is not done in a perfect way. Uh, things change because of the lighting, because of the angle of, of the camera, etc. It's not an exact copy of that block from one frame to the other. And if you compare those uh, two blocks, there is a difference. And that difference is called in video compression a residual. And then you need to compress and represent that residual as well and send it to the receiver side. And then on the receive side, you can take the block from the previous frame, move it according to the motion vector, and then add the residual on top of that. And you have a pretty good representation of that uh, area in, uh, in uh, the new frame. And this is, you know, kind of at a very high level how um, the video compression works. So in general, when, when you see artifacts, uh, one of the most common ones in video compression is blockiness. In blockiness, uh, you see on the screen uh, blocks. You actually see uh, lines, horizontal and vertical lines that uh, contain, you know, rectangular parts of, uh, of the picture. And you see the boundaries between these blocks uh, clearly. And this artifact is called uh, blockiness. Um, so instead of uh, seeing smooth textures, smooth surfaces, you see this very uh, dominant uh, horizontal and vertical lines, which divide uh, the image into blocks. This artifact uh, really shows a low quality of video and people are almost um, instantly associated with the low quality of uh, video. And the problem is that these um, blockiness artifacts are created when the data is not represented correctly, where not enough um, bits are being alloc allocated to represent either the motion or the residual. And another important part of uh, the video compression process is that at any given point in time, you need to decide how many bits do you allocate to representing the motion in the scene, the motion vector, and how many bits you allocate to represent the residual. And you do this using a mechanism called rate distortion. And these are kind of uh, decisions that you make or the encoder makes um, all of the time across all of the frame throughout uh, the movie. And if you make uh, the wrong decisions in bit allocation, the result is video compression artifacts, such as blockiness. And another artifact that is uh, dominant when you have very few uh, shades or colors that uh, appear on the screen is an artifact that is called banding. So you can represent many colors using the uh, video compressor's representation of uh, video, the way it uh, encodes the color components of uh, the pixels. And you can do this using 8-bit um, in regular encoding. For HDR, you use 10 bits for every pixel. And the more bits you have, the more shades you can represent. But if the whole uh, image consists of only a few shades, then you don't have uh, enough um, uh, codes or representations to show all of these uh, different shades in your uh, video compression, in your bitstream. And then you see an artifact of banding. And this means that if you have kind of a smooth transition uh, between colors or between shades of gray, when you look at it and on the screen, 
you would see uh, discrete bands of color, like stripes of different color, where again, the difference between one and the next and the neighboring one is, is prominent and is visible uh, instead of being uh, smooth and, and like a, a gradient. So these are uh, two of the main artifacts that happen in video compression, which are blockiness and uh, banding. And unfortunately, in this episode of uh, Game of Thrones, um, we saw a lot of... They were prominent features. <laughs> yeah, very much, very much, very much. Very, very prominent, yeah. And it's interesting, Jor, that you point out that these artifacts often are caused by lack of data, not enough data. And so... Um, there have been a there have been a couple theories about you know what happened, and one of them obviously was well the encoding bit rate was just too low. Another one was that you know there's a limited range of colors and brightness levels exactly as you started to explain that there was a very specific artistic choice, and you basically had gray and then dark gray. <laughs> <laughs> through, yeah. throughout the entire, um, you know, nearly the entire uh, episode. I think that's, um, you know, what we want to really talk about because as, especially the encoding bitrate being too low, that's actually only um, partially the reason. And so I think it's useful to jump in and, uh, you know, why don't you explain what the answer is, you know, to fixing this so that this doesn't happen again. So we've we've analyzed it and we don't think the bitrate was too low on this uh, episode. The uh, cable and satellite providers used the regular bitrate as as uh, did the uh, uh, streaming providers and this same bitrate gave very good results for the typical content of uh, Game of Thrones. And only here uh, there were very few shades of gray and everything was very dark. There were these compression artifacts. They were not caused by lack of bitrate. There was enough bitrate. What we think happened is that this bitrate was not allocated correctly. So as I said, uh, the encoder needs to make decisions where and how to allocate those bits. And in this case, where you have very few shades of gray, you need to focus your bit allocation on carefully representing that range of colors and not representing the full spectrum uh, of colors. And in addition to that, we think there were specific uh, issues of encoding that actually were responsible for um, creating these uh, uh, compression uh, artifacts. And, and again, this goes back to the fact that uh, the scenes are very dark. The differences in colors between neighboring pixels and region is very small. So what happens is that um, when uh, you compute, for example, a motion estimation and you want to see where a certain block moved from uh, one frame uh, uh, to the other, those uh, very small differences in pixel value can confuse the motion estimation algorithm. And that algorithm may think that uh, it is actually seeing noise, which is random movement of pixels instead of an actual uh, motion of some object uh, in the scene. So if your motion estimation algorithm is not uh, tuned, especially for uh, dark scenes, then these type of uh, compression artifacts can happen. Another technique that is uh, typically used by video encoders in order to speed up the processing and not go and uh, search through all 
the possible encoding modes and encoding parameters and select the best one is uh, what's called early termination. In early termination, the encoder uh, at some point uh, stops uh, searching for modes and assumes that um, the modes and decision it has reached so far are the optimal one and there's no need to go and continue searching. And uh, we think that according to our analysis, when you have a very dark scene, the algorithm that decides to do an early termination can also be fooled and uh, not search for the right parameters um, for that scene. So um, again, when you have a video encoder, it is very important to tune the algorithms, both the rate distortion algorithm, which decides on the allocation of bits between the motion vectors and the residual, as well as the motion estimation algorithm itself and the early termination algorithm, so it can handle these dark scenes. And if you do that, you have another benefit, and this is a good handling of fade-ins and fade-outs. This is another area that um, many times you can see that the scene looks, uh, looks very good, and then it fades out. And during the fade-out, you see blockiness and you see banding. And the reason is that during the fade-out, suddenly your range of colors is compressed and everything is dark, but still there is motion there, there is texture, there is content. And if the encoder is not tuned to detect this change in overall brightness and to adapt its algorithms, you will see compression artifacts during the fade-out and during a fade-in uh, into a new scene. And that's why it's very important uh, to tune your encoder for correct handling of dark scenes, and this will also uh, solve your issues when you have uh, fade in and fade out. It's interesting. Now, these are these are things that are really deep inside the codec, though. So, when you talk about tuning for a dark scene, is is that sort of like a, almost a preset that gets called up? or that the encoder uh, somehow is able to detect that there's a very limited range of brightness, therefore it's dark, and then it, it sort of sets itself up for that? Or is this, is this universal and, and the encoder just knows how to deal with dark scenes regardless of what the content is in the frame? It, it has to be automatic. Uh, you, you can't have a preset that the user says, okay, now use this, now use that, you know, because you have a... Um, let's say an episode or movie coming in and you need to encode it uh, very quickly and there's no time for manual intervention. The encoder, at least in our case, uh, automatically detects um, these type of changes. So it detects when the scene is dark, it detects a fade in or fade out and it adapts the algorithms to handle those uh, situations in a different way than the way it handles uh, regular video. So a lot of the parameters are, uh, are changed or modified or scaled when this situation is detected in order to give the optimal results when you're encoding video. So, Dror, I, I know that CRF is used by a lot of uh, video engineers. It's um, becoming uh, more common practice as kind of a lightweight content adaptive or context-aware technique. But are there any trade-offs? Do we, do we think that 
you know, if CRF was used that maybe CRF could have introduced any artifacts or any of these issues? Um, yes, that is uh, definitely possible because um, CRF uses uh, a pretty basic uh, technique of uh, content-aware encoding where it looks at the complexity of the video and it looks at uh, motion parameters to see how much uh, bitrate can be reduced in a specific scene. Uh, usually, uh, in, in, if you have a regular scene, then uh, this can work uh, pretty well. When you have a lot of motion, then the artifacts are less noticeable. So you can uh, increase the QP value, um, the quality parameter, actually the quantization parameter. You can increase it and uh, quantize more and reduce uh, the bitrate. But uh, what happens for uh, dark scenes is that uh, this algorithm that decides uh, what is the complexity of the content, uh, how much actual texture and motion you have inside, it can be fooled by those uh, dark scenes where you have a limited range of color and limited range of brightness values. And uh, in that case, the algorithm may think that you can aggressively compress that content and uh, reduce bitrate. So mm, it might, uh, yeah, it, it kind of, uh, overlooks uh, motion and texture, which have very limited range of, of colors, and it might uh, classify that as noise, and then you can uh, aggressively reduce the bitrate. And when you do reduce the bitrate, but you still have content there, that's when you get those artifacts of uh, blockiness and bending. That's right. And it's, um, I think, is definitely worth mentioning that, you know, this is one significant advantage to our approach, uh, that is CABR, which works in a closed loop and, of course, uses a, a perceptually aligned quality measure to adjust that frame QP, um, but guaranteeing no artifacts are introduced. And so driving to the lowest bit rate, you know, therefore providing constant quality, uh, but doing that in a way that, you know, it's not going to over uh, compensate or be overly aggressive. I think that that could have helped here if, if indeed, you know, some, certainly not all, but if some of what we saw was, was just CRF, not, um, Kind of reaching the limit, I guess, would be the best way to put it yeah. of what it can do. So, uh, yeah, cert certainly CRF can be very effective. But, um, you know, also, I we have touched on this. And, you know, thank you for giving such a, a detailed explanation as to what, you know, is happening really deep inside the Kodak. Because I think for a lot of us uh, working around video encoding, Obviously, we're very knowledgeable and very experienced about how an encoder operates. Um, but, you know, what's actually happening inside the engine um, is there's a lot going on. It's very, very complex. And, you know, we have a, a very large team. In fact, I think really the largest team in the industry that's, that's working on, on exactly these things, you know, the, the, the core components of the video engine. That is the codec. But uh, yeah, so for us, I know that we have focused a lot and maybe you can comment and, and unpack it a little bit more. You know, we've invested heavily in our deblocking filter optimization.
optimizations and, you know, looking even at, at the Lambda tables and our SAO filter, of course, that's for HEVC. But can you give uh, any, any more information uh, to the listeners, you know, about some of the things that we've done in these areas? So, uh, yeah, I mean, some of them are, are public because there are patented techniques that we use and anybody can look up uh, those patents. If, if we try to describe them, then it's really going into very technical details. I, I would just say that at, at, at a high level, uh, we have a very unique approach to um, calculate the psychovisual distortions that are used uh, by a rate control algorithm. And... Uh, this helps us to decide on the right prediction modes and the most optimal bit allocation for uh, the different component, for the motion estimation and, and uh, for the residual. And uh, this means when we, when we say um, psychovisual uh, distortion, this means that whenever we make a decision, we don't look only at what happens to pixel values as a result of that decision, but actually how the decision will impact the visual content of, uh, of the scene. So we look at it from a human perspective and take into account what kind of artifacts are visible or not by uh, human beings. And this helps us to uh, improve the subjective visual quality across uh, really a very wide array of, of content. As you mentioned, uh, we look at all of this uh, psychovisual data to adjust different uh, parameters uh, according to what is happening um, in the scene. And uh, this uh, allows us to use the most optimal lambda values for um, uh, doing the best rate distortion um, calculation uh, in each one of these uh, uh, scenarios. As I mentioned before, the specific tuning that we do for dark scenes and uh, th scenes that are getting darker, like fade-out scenes and the scenes that are dark start from mm -hmm. black and, and, and start getting brighter, like the fade-in scenes, um, all of those have been very carefully tuned in our encoder um, to provide uh, the best quality. Um, we don't have, uh, of course, the, the sources of uh, the HBO uh, um, episode, but if anybody is listening, we'd be happy to get them and uh, and show what we can do um, with our encoder on this content. You know, this situation is 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 interesting to me because uh, as I was going through and reading some of the Twitter comments, it's it's amazing how you know certainly the average consumer or even, uh, you know, the not so average uh, uh, consumer viewer, they're not walking around thinking about video encoding and how a block-based codec works, you know, like we do. But it was just really interesting to see, read the comments and see that people are really keying in now to quality. You know, they're beginning to understand video quality and they care about it and they're very passionate about it. And uh, I think, you know, there's, there's a couple takeaways that we should end with. And, uh, you know, one is the plain, simple fact that we have reached the absolute useful life of H.264. Would you agree with that, Dror? Yes. I mean, you still need to use it for those devices that don't support HEVC, but for any device that supports HEVC, and there are over 2 billion devices like that already in the market, you really should be sending those devices, HEVC streams, 
so you could get better quality for the same bitrate. And although bitrate was not an issue here, um, when uh, an encoder uh, needs to make a decision and it is a constraint, the more bits you throw at the problem uh, really helps uh, uh, to solve it. So uh, with HEVC and uh, well, using uh, advanced uh, encoding tools, even if your uh, encoder uh, still has some, uh, some issue, HEVC gives you uh, a better range of tools to play with and to really extract the best quality that you can out of, um, out of the given bitrate. And you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, people saying that, yeah, we need more quality. And somebody was saying the quality was so bad, they should use 4K. Well, obviously, the resolution was not the issue here. Um, yeah. On the contrary, if they used 4K resolution, then you know, they wouldn't have enough bitrate. And then, you know, even more compression artifacts uh, would yeah, happen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, HEVC is very useful to all resolutions and it right. is a better codec. And, you know, that's that's a huge takeaway. I know we've certainly written about this uh, in our blog and, um, you know, we'll talk more about it. But and now you have three quarters, uh, more than 75% of iOS devices connected to the mobile network support HEVC. And over half of the Android devices support HEVC. And these are connected to the mobile network. So this isn't theoretical. You know, it's not based on, uh, you know, just doing some analysis of how many um, units have been sold. And this is connected to the network. So it is time to move to a more advanced Kodak. When it, as we have pointed out, you know, we're not suggesting that would have necessarily solved all of the issues that we experienced, but it certainly probably would have improved the situation greatly. Another point is that, um, you know, encoding ladders and bit rates, uh, it, it, we're way past the time of them being, uh, they need to be modernized. Uh, TN 2224 has been updated by, by Apple after all. And yet, you know, the reason why I feel compelled to mention this is, you know, we still see, and, and I think there's a surprisingly high number of services that are basically still running a variation of the original Apple ABR ladder, which is now right. what, 15 years old. I mean, it's just, it seems crazy. And of course it is understandable in one sense because, you know, there is legacy device compatibility that is required and certainly no one wants to leave a user behind. But I think as, as the market is just getting so competitive, that is the market for streaming services. And as consumers now are aware that better video quality is possible, you know, it's really time that as an industry, in addition to adopting a modern codec like HEVC, that really these old sort of you know mobile standards are are looked at and um, and upgraded. Yeah, the, that's right. I mean, uh, doing fixed bitrate encoding, and I, I I was surprised at how many people today still use uh, CBR, constant bitrate and cozy. CBR, yeah. that's right, that's <laughs> I mean, right, that's right. And and what blows me away about that, and we could certainly, and you know, we need to do an episode on this actually, because the common response, and I know you hear this a lot too, uh, is, well, 
you know, still players uh, just have a hard time with VBR and as the bit rate varies and, you know, they, they have a hard time choosing the right profile and, and we just find it's easier. And, and I just find that to be such a, dare I use the word cop out, because the fact is, is it, yes, there's a handful of legacy devices out there with very old implementations with very limited memory that, you know, that that certainly is true. But, you know, my gosh, I mean, you look at developed markets and I mean, you can't even, if you find someone with an iPhone six, you know, it's like, look at that antique, you know, and the iPhone six can easily play back a modern ABR stack has plenty of memory. It just seems like the industry does need to adjust around this for sure. And and why would you compromise the quality that you uh, transmit to supporting devices just because a few devices cannot absolutely um, s- support that you know same same as with HVC VBR gives a much better quality than yep. uh, CBR at the same bit rate so if your device can do VBR, Send VBR to that device. Your users will thank you. That's right. Users will thank you. And uh, and rather than some of these nasty Twitter <laughs> uh, Twitter posts that we can't even uh, publish, uh, they will say nice things. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, um, you know this this final trend or observation is uh, we're definitely moving past black boxes and hardware encoders. But you know, I think this situation definitely shines the light on the power of software because I I know that in some cases the issue is uh, you know if you're using a black box, i.e., a hardware encoder. It, it it just you just don't have the ability to go in and even if you understand uh, what the issues are and you want to go in and and you want to make changes um, you just can't do it they just don't allow you to do that um, and that doesn't mean all software also gives you the same you know knobs and levers and and uh, but certainly you have much more power by adopting you know a, a software encoder over something that's hardware based um, or, or just more black black box, even if it is software. Right. And I think this episode gives us an excellent example of why you would need that. Why you need um, it. That's right. Yeah. Because and, uh, as a director making an artistic decision, I'm going to do something that is very dark. So you will feel like it is night and you would hardly see what's going on. But this is how actually, you know, um, those character characters uh, felt or experienced that uh, scene. Uh, that imaginary scene in in, in the show. So yeah. the director decides to make this uh, artistic decision and everything is very dark, just a few shades of gray. So if you have a hardware encoder or even a software encoder that's rigid and, uh, and cannot uh, accept uh, external parameters or settings, there's not much you can do. But if you have a software encoder and if that software encoder is flexible enough, then maybe you'd even want to have uh, custom Lambda tables just That's for right. that episode, just yeah, to enable yeah. to convey that artistic intent uh, of of uh, the director of that um, of that episode, and you need to have that flexibility because you know there's so many combinations, so many possibilities of uh, scenes and uh, and and lighting and textures, background motions, all of that. So if you have a particular uh, piece of content, and at the QA stage, you see these artifacts. You know, you need to have the ability to go in, 
you know, contact your vendor, modify whatever is needed on the fly, and produce in time those great viewing results that your users are expecting. I think we've definitely uh, uncovered, uh, you know, many or at least uh, some of the most relevant issues that will happen here. So certainly hope that uh, our listeners got a lot of value out of this and enjoyed the discussion. This is episode 16. By the way, Dror, we are closing in on 5,000 downloads since we started. Wow. Yeah, it seems wow. like you know, the, the industry is really appreciating, um, what we're sharing. So, uh, thank you. Yeah. We thank you all of our listeners out there, um, listening to our, to our podcast and you're welcome to provide us uh, with feedback. We want to hear back from you. If you have any comments or questions about, uh, what you hear here, here on the, the episode. We'd be happy uh, to hear back from you. Absolutely. And we'd love to have you come on as well. Um, you know, we really, as we've said before, there's there's not too much that we probably wouldn't uh, want to talk about. And uh, until next time, happy encoding. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders Podcast, a production of Beamer Limited. To begin using Beamer's Codex today, go to beamer.com forward slash free to receive up to 100 hours of no-cost HEVC and H264 transcoding every month.